So first I'm going to start by, uh, by reading, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get started. So if you want to open your Bibles, uh, open your apps, whatever it is that you're using, to Habakkuk chapter 2, we'll start in verse 6. This is the Lord's woe to the Chaldeans. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly rise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will spoil for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a house with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts, That people labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when when its maker has shaped it? A metal image? A teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Join me in prayer. Uh, Father God, Lord, we just love you. God, we come before you right now to just hear your, hear your word. Um, God, first, foremost, let me just say, Lord, please, I pray that you would just set me aside, God. Um, just use me as your vessel. Speak to your people. God, I pray that you would just open hearts, that you would soften hearts, Lord. I pray that there would be something in your word for everyone, Lord, because your, your word is everlasting, and your word reaches out amongst the nations, Lord. And so there is something in here for everyone to take home, God. And so I just pray that, that, that you would just prick hearts and pierce hearts, Lord. I, I pray that, that those in need would receive a word of encouragement, God. And I pray that those in sin would turn and repent of it. God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. It's in your mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. So when, uh, when Pastor Marco first started Habakkuk, he gave us a little bit of a historical uh, 
timeline, kind of a what was going on. Um, I'm a real nerd when it comes to this sort of thing, so I have to understand the context. I need to understand the setting. I kind of need to know what we're, where we're at and what's going on. Um, in case you had missed that, that sermon um, several weeks ago, I'm just going to do a quick little run-through and just let you know, hey, this is where we're at in the, the world history timeline, and then we're actually going to, to jump in. So, uh, so historically, at, at this time period... Um, uh, king Solomon has passed. So that this time period is after the death of King Solomon. And during this time, the nation of Israel has been split into two kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom, uh, which is the, the kingdom of Israel. And then you have the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. So there are two separate kingdoms at this time. Now, also during this time, the nation of Israel had been sacked by the Assyrians. And that nation had been taken away into captivity. Now, who, who are the current powers? Who are the big dogs in this area during this time frame? So here in this, in this Mesopotamian region, first you had the Assyrian Empire. They were the shot callers. They were the guys who were in charge. Um, they, were the, they had the biggest empire at that time. They were ruling over everyone. Other nations were paying tribute to them. Now, they had expanded out so far that they were having trouble controlling some of their borders. There were uprisings. There were rebellions that were happening. And so the Assyrian nation was actually on the decline here. You have the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire was, was rising up again. Um, of course, their capital is the infamous Babylon. Now, the Babylonians had to pay tribute to the Assyrians. So at this time, the Babylonians were answering to the Assyrians. And then finally, you have those scoundrels, the Chaldeans. Who were these Chaldeans? They were a nomadic tribe who later um, settled and assimilated into Babylon. And they actually wound up taking over the throne in, in Babylonia. But the Chaldeans were a separate group. They were a separate people. And they were a nomadic tribe. Um, when you think of the Chaldeans, you should think of, uh, of the movie Mad Max. And those savage gangs that were going all over the land, they were just pillaging, they were taking, they were burning towns as they went. They didn't care. They were taking plunder everywhere they went. That was the Chaldeans. That was this group of people. And they wound up settling in Babylonia. And, and eventually they, they took charge. Um, so the, uh, you had Nabopolassar. He was the first Chaldean king of Babylonia. And that happened in 626 B.C. to kind of give you a little bit of a time reference. Um, he was succeeded by his son, Nebuchadnezzar II, um, the infamous Nebuchadnezzar. Yes, the Nebuchadnezzar from the book of Daniel. Um, and he succeeded his father in 604 B.C. and ruled for approximately 42 years. This Chaldean was the king of Babylonia. Now, at this time that Habakkuk is writing, the Temple of Solomon is still standing um, I, I'm sure you, we would have seen this here in, in, in Habakkuk's journal if, this, if the temple had been sacked, but he refers to the temple as, as still standing. So that first Babylonian invasion when, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar came through the first time was somewhere around 597 B.C., and that was kind of an initial invasion of, of, um, of Judah to let them know, we are in charge, you guys will be answering to us. And they paid tribute, and they, they acknowledged that about 10 years later, in, um, in a, around 586 B.C., the, the king of Judah at that time decided, mm, I don't think I'm going to answer to them anymore because there were some, some things that were going, they were going along with the, with the Babylonians. So he stopped paying tribute. He kind of rebelled against them. And that's when they came in in force. They took, uh, they took over Jerusalem and they sacked and burned the temple to the ground. And so all, all of these things happened later. That happened in 586 BC is when the, the Babylonian invasion happened and the temple was destroyed. So right now we have the, the prophet Habakkuk. 
And so the historians are dating him to around 625 BC. Um, he was active at the same time, or the, during the same time frame as the prophet Jeremiah. Um, and he was thought to have written his book during the reign of King um, Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim was a wicked king. He was an idolatrous king. Uh, what's kind of interesting here is he was the son of Josiah, um, king Josiah, and Josiah actually tried to start a reformation with his people. Uh, what had been happening here out of the last five kings, you had two of them who actually did follow God, and the three of them who were wicked and who were practicing idolatry. So it was a constant back and forth with the, with the nation of Israel, with the Hebrew people, of following God and then falling into idolatry. They'd follow God and they'd follow idolatry. So at this time, they were heavily into idolatry, and that is what is weighing so heavily on the prophet Habakkuk's heart. So in the last chapter, we saw God's discipline towards his people. Um, we, we saw him reveal to the prophet Habakkuk that he would indeed be disciplining his people and that this is how he was going to use it. He was essentially going to use these Chaldean people, these marauders, these raiders, to go through and to, to sack them. And that was, that was going to be the hand of God. He was going to be using them as his hand to go through it and to discipline his people. So we've had a look at discipline already in the last chapter. Now we're going to take a look at God's punishment for his enemies. What does God's punishment look like? So here, um, if you want to look at verse, verses 6 to 8, and he writes, and this is the Lord speaking, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations, and the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities, and all who dwell in them. So here is the first woe. And, and when we look through these verses, in, in verses 6 through, uh, 6 through 20, there are five different woes that God is giving to the Chaldeans, essentially five different warnings that he's giving to them. He's letting them know, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. He's giving them these five different woes. So here is the first woe. The first woe is um, the plunder will be plundered. And what exactly does that mean? What are we talking about here? Essentially, what was happening with the Chaldeans during this time, it was... Um, it was home invasion on a, on a massive scale, on a massive proportion. So if you could imagine, I, I think just me personally, um, living through a home invasion would be one of the worst things that you could live through. Like that would be something incredibly traumatic. And these guys, the Chaldeans, were doing this to people on a grand scale. It was in entire, um, in entire cities, entire small civilizations that they were going through, that they were sacking, that they were taking over. So they were plundering all these people. And now God is saying they will in turn, be plundered. Um, the old saying, you will reap what you sow, that is exactly what's going to happen to the Chaldeans. They have done this for so long to so many people, now God is going to have all of those that they had sacked and plundered, all those that, that the Chaldeans thought were beneath them, are going to come back and sack them instead. Um, Proverbs fifteen twenty seven says, whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household. But he who hates bribes will live. The Chaldeans were greedy for unjust gain. They didn't care how they got their money. They didn't care how they got their spoils. They just wanted it. And they were willing to take it from whoever, whenever. Uh, the result, um, th what their actions are, 
Their actions are the result of an unconverted human heart. Let's think about that for a second. An unconverted human heart. It's a heart that has not transformed. It's a heart that has not given itself over to the Lord. So obviously during this time, it was before Christ, but you still had the word of the Lord. And these people were, it fell on deaf ears. They wanted nothing to do with it. So they had an unconverted human heart. Now, did this stop back then? No, it continues today. I mean, you can just look around. You can read the news, watch the news. Um, I mean, you, you look at countries like, like North Korea, where you have a leader who lives in, in a life of luxury in a, in a palace while his people are starving and dying on a daily basis. You can look in the United States. We have very similar situations where we have incredibly wealthy people, and we have others who are living out of a cardboard box. Um, you look at Mexico, where there's literally, for, for generations, there has been no middle class. You were in either incredibly wealthy or you were incredibly poor. It continues today, and it's a result of a heart that is unconverted, um, a human heart that is unconverted. Uh, Proverbs chapter 1, verses 18 to 19 says, But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. That, that want of greed is what is, is, what is robbing them, that, and, and they're willing to take it from someone unjustly. As we continue on, we're going to look at the second woe. Let's look at verse, um, verses 9 through 11. And the Lord says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. So here we have the second woe to the Chaldeans, and it's the consequence of covetousness um, and unjust gain. So because of, their, because of their greed, they wanted to take from others, but they wanted to set themselves up in a place where nothing could be taken from them, where they would be secure, where they would be safe from harm, but they had no problem taking that security, taking those possessions away from others. So it was a consequence of covetousness. Um, what are we coveting in our lives? Because sometimes it's, it's, not, just, um, it's not just possessions. It could, be, it could be so many other things that we set our heart on, that we desire, that we want, other things that we see um, that, that can permeate in us, and we, we need to see that it will, it will destroy us. Um, eventually, all will be brought to the same level, Death is the great equalizer. So even those who have amassed huge fortunes and they have done it through covetousness, they've done it through greed, in the end, they're not going to take it with them. In the end, the grave is the equalizer because you're going to leave all of that here. And you, you'll see um, what wealth is not, is not an evil thing. Let me just say that. Having money is a blessing, but what are you doing with it? Is it something that you, that you covet, that you have to have, that you won't share, that you keep in a very tightly gripped hand? Or is it something that you have your hands open with and you're willing to share and you're willing to help out others, um, those in need? For those consumed by their greed, their wealth will be the only heaven they know. Those consumed by greed, their wealth will be the only heaven they know. When, when that greed and that want of things has, has just consumed you and taken over you, God doesn't have a place in your heart. You, you have no room for him in there because you're so consumed with, uh, with the want of things. Excuse me. And finally, 
The sin of greed will only bring shame. And the reference verse here is, is actually pretty incredible. In, the, in Joshua chapter 7, verses 20 to 26, I took out a couple of verses in there because they were a little bit repetitive, but this essentially has a gist of, of what was happening there. So I'm going to read starting here in verse 20. And, and Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the, the Lord God of Israel, and, what, and, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 20 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing, weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. And then Joshua sends men to his tent to verify this. They find exactly what he said. They find the 200 shekels of silver. They find the gold. They, they, they find this, this cloak. And Joshua said, why did you bring this trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned him with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains today. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to, th- to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. So what did this man do? This man tried to rob God. He took tributes that were for God, and he, he coveted them. He wanted them. How are we doing that in our lives today? I, I can tell you one, one simple and easy way. Is, it's one word, and I'm not going to dig into it because this isn't the sermon for that, but tithes. Are you being faithful with your tithes? Or are you coveting that money, that, those earnings, and holding on to it? That's one simple way. Will a man rob God? Well, we try to rob God. We might not be going to his temple and taking out silver and gold, but if we're not giving to him what he's asked us for, then we're doing the same thing, and we deserve that same punishment. We'll continue on. We'll look at the, we'll look at the third woe. Let's look at verse 12. And the Lord says, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So at this point in history, um, building, cities, uh, building cities demonstrated that someone was able to conquer the land. When you were able to go out into an area, you were able to erect a city, build a city, bring people in there, it's shown that you were great, that you were mighty, and that you had conquered the land. And so these people, these Chaldeans, were willing to do that at any cost. They were willing to go out, and they, and they, would, they were willing to, uh, to, to cut down. They were, they were willing to, uh, to, to build these cities on, on, on blood and, and on the backs of others. They didn't care what it took. They wanted to get it done because they wanted to, to make their mark. They wanted to show that they had conquered these areas. So this third woe here, it's, it's a denouncement of oppressors, um, those who would oppress others for their own gain. Um, it's, a, it's a condemnation of those building kingdoms um, through warfare, through, through, through blood. Um, it, it can also, if we look at it in, in our day, in our modern time, because it's not happening as much then, there's not as much spreading and building by the sword today, but what can we apply it to? We can apply it to those who, who possibly build their fortunes by exploiting others, by exploiting the innocent. I know we do have plenty of that, and plenty of that has gone on still throughout the world where where, uh, where, where 
the innocent are, are taken advantage of so that others can build up and amass their fortune and, and, and put their mark on society. Genesis chapter 19, verses 24 to 25, we'll see a reference here of, of, of what God to, did to some of these, these wicked cities, these, these cities that were built on sin and built on iniquity. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he threw those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. The Lord overthrew them. He rained down on them. So what was the, what was the sin? What was Sodom and Gomorrah doing? Was it just the, the one thing? And remember when the Lord came down, he said that there were many cries coming up, that it was just a wicked people, that they had many sins. There was so much going on in those cities that the Lord finally had enough, and he had to come down and see it for himself. And when he saw what was happening there, he rained fire down upon it. But what's really awesome, and I went through and, and just kind of reread the whole thing, is just there is that glimmer of hope. Because even though the city was about to be destroyed, there was fire going to be rained down from heaven when, uh, when Abraham's interceding here for, for Lot, first he asks, well, Lord, if there's, if there's 50 righteous people, would you still destroy the city? God, no, 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 I guess I, I wouldn't. And he keeps dwindling the number down and dwindling the number down, and finally five. Lord, if there's five righteous people, would you still destroy the city? And God tells him, no, he wouldn't. And he gives him that opportunity. He, he sends his angels in to remove Lot, to remove his family. So there is that hope. And, and we, see that, um, we see that hope here in the last in this, uh, in this last verse, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. The important thing to remember here is our greatest day is still to come. Even though there's all these calamities that are happening, there's all this evil around us, our greatest day is still to come. There's hope. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, and to the glory of God the Father. So in the, in the, midst, of, in the midst of this, that last verse that, uh, that Habakkuk writes that the Lord gave to him, that, that God's glory is going to cover the earth. And, and I, I'm sure you, you, if, you, if you kind of looked at the earth from, 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 a, from, from space, when you see how the expanse of the sea and just how there is, there's no gaps, there's no space, just how wide and encompassing the sea is, that is going to be God's glory here on the earth. We're not there yet. That day is still yet to come, but that's that hope that we have because the, this day is coming, and these things will happen. And that's when Christ comes, when Christ comes and we have that salvation, when every knee will bow, every tongue confess that, that he is God and that he is Lord. We have that to look for, that, that hope. Our greatest day is still to come. Let's continue on. We'll look at the fourth woe now. The fourth woe. It's uh, verses 15 to 17. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory. 
The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. So this fourth woe is it's, it's a woe to to shameless people. Um, these the shameless people will be disgraced. And when you kind of break it down, there's so much going on in these verses right here. First, there's this warning um, against others who who make their neighbors drink and that pour their wrath out upon them when they do that. When they when they get their neighbors drunk. Um, that you will be filled with shame instead of glory. And the Lord is, is, is challenging him, why don't you do this yourself? Instead of trying to push your neighbor to do it, then he's warning against violence, the, the violence that was done to the earth. So first, let's, let's, talk about the, let's talk about that corruption. So God is warning against those who corrupt others. Um, you, I'm sure you've all heard the saying, misery loves company. That's kind of exactly what was happening here. The, the Chaldeans were so wrapped up and so engulfed in these sins and their sins um, they would have these, these, these huge just, just drinking fests and parties and there was, um, there was sexual sin and all kinds of things going on at, at, during this time and they loved to bring in these nations, these nations that they conquered, they would pull them in and invite them in to their sin and they were leading others into sin. In, uh, in Romans chapter 14, verse 13, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Paul's warning against causing others to sin, against bringing them down, and that's exactly what the Chaldeans were, were doing here to those that they conquered. They were bringing them into their sin, um, and, and they were causing them to fall. Now, the warning against drunkenness here, drunkenness always leads to other types of immorality, uh, usually of a sexual or a violent nature. It, um, it, its corrupt fruit is rampant in our society today. Now, I want to be clear on what drunkenness means. Is he saying that you cannot have a beer, that you cannot have a drink? It's, it's, there's a big difference between having a drink and being drunk and being a drunkard. Drunkenness is what they're warning about. And, and I, I think if you kind of saw the picture, saw the image of, of, of what was going on in these things, you would understand their drunkenness. And it does, because as, as people, when we abide too much, you, you don't have your senses about you. And he's warning about, he's, they're warning against this, that it's, it's going to lead to sins of a sexual nature. It's going to lead to sins of, of violence. And I think we've all seen it in our lives, especially our time before Christ. And when you've been out and you see these things, and, and, and there are those who, who consume too much, they're, they're not themselves. And usually the next day, if you talk to them, or if it's been you, you're embarrassed about the things that you've done the night before. And the Lord is warning against that here. And he's letting them know that, that all of these things that you did, that that shame is going to be brought to you. Um, the cup of wrath, here in, in verse 16. Um, this, is, this is actually an, an excellent part. When the Lord says, drink yourself and show your uncircumcision, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The cup of wrath of the Lord was go- is going to be poured out here uh, upon the Chaldeans. And when he's telling them to, to show their uncircumcision, it refers to them showing that they don't belong to him because they were not following the, 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 the covenant with Abraham. They, they, they weren't circumcised, so they were not following God. They were not his people. So that cup of wrath was going to be filled, and it was going to be poured out upon them because they were not his. And that's part of what punishment is, that, that cup of wrath that, that, the, that the Lord had. So God had disciplined his people, but he is, 
Here he's letting them know that, that the cup of wrath that is in his right hand is going to be poured out upon them and that they're going to be made to, to drink it because they are not his. When he's challenging them to show their uncircumcision, it's because they are not his people. Um, what's awesome, though, is that cup of wrath that is poured out um, to those who sit against God, that cup is empty for us because, as, as believers. That cup of wrath of God for believers is empty. And we're going to talk about that a little later, so let's just kind of put a pin in that. Just kind of remember that we're going to talk about that empty cup of wrath and why is it empty. Um, finally, there at the, at, at the end, he talks about the destruction of land for the, for the unjust, um, and they talk about the destruction of, of, Le, of Lebanon. Um, in, in Psalm 104, verse 16, it says, the, the trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted, that God planted. So the, those trees in Lebanon, that whole area, it was like God's personal grove, and it had been exploited, and it had been plundered. And these people went through, and they just they utterly destroyed the area. And so God is, God's angry at them for, for that, because they, they took what they didn't need to, and they plundered, and they destroyed, and they burned. And so God is warning against that type of, uh, against that type of behavior. Um, Matthew 26, 38 through 44, we're going to touch on that, that cup when we said we we're going to kind of get back to that. That he said to them, my soul, and this is Jesus speaking, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me an hour, one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Have any of you guys ever found that during a really important moment in your life, you get really sleepy, and like you can't focus? Because that's happened to me. Am I the only one? But Peter apparently was doing it. I mean, Jesus was asking him this one thing, just stand guard, just watch. And, and the Lord Jesus is out there. He's praying his heart out. He's, he's praying so hard. They say you know, blood was coming down. He was just praying to the Lord, Lord, if, if this cup can pass from me, if there's any other way, let it happen, but your will be done, not mine. So that cup, that cup of wrath that was going to be poured out all upon us, it's that cup that Jesus took, that he willingly took, that he went to the cross, and he knew how incredible that punishment was. I mean, he had been watching us from in heaven from, from the foundations of the earth. He knew the wickedness of the world and the wickedness that was to come because he's sovereign. He knows all. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows what sins I'm going to commit tomorrow and the next day. And he took all of that upon himself, that, that whole cup. He drank it. And we're still going to touch a little bit more on that cup a little bit later. So let's look at the, um, at the, final, at the final woe. Verse 18, 18 to 20. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. 
Let all the earth keep silent before him. So this final woe, this fifth woe, is, is a woe to those who have powerless idols. Having a powerless idol. Um, Deuteronomy 27.15. This is a, a command from the Lord that, that was given down to the priests, saying, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and set up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. So in, in many ways, idolatry is worse. This, this woe of idolatry is worse than the other woes that have come before. And, but why is that? What is so bad about idolatry that it would be worse than the other woes that had come before? Well, first, it involves abandoning God to a false religion. Um, secondly, we're replacing the irreplaceable with something that cannot satisfy you. So we're, we're taking God out of the picture and saying, okay, we're going to worship we're going to worship these things instead. Um, one of my favorite verses, one of, one of the, my favorite studies is here with, um, with Isaiah in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 26 to 27. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called up the name of, of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they made. And at noon, Elisha mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself. Or he is on a journey. Or perhaps he is asleep and must be made awakened. So if you don't know some of the backstory here, uh, Elisha is challenging the prophets of Baal. And so they, they set up two different altars. And the prophets of Baal are dancing around their, their, their sacrifice that they made, calling for Baal to come and to to light that, that altar on fire, and nothing happens. And then Elijah's starting to make fun of them, like, like maybe, he's, maybe he's out of town. Maybe he's in the restroom. Maybe that's why he's not answering you. So he lets them do this for a couple days, and then finally Elisha goes to his, he pours, and he just douses water all over his burnt offering. And then he calls upon the name of the Lord, and the Lord brings fire down and burns up that entire offering and burns up the offering of Baal, and then the, the Israelites turn away from their idolatry and they slaughter the, the prophets of it. It's, it's an awesome story. Go to Kings and read this because I could go on and on. But anyway, it's, it, it's awesome when you see that power of the Lord and, and Isaiah had that faith to, to do these things and to call upon the Lord and the Lord answered him. And that is just incredible. Getting back into idolatry in the West, what, what, what do we have? What do we use for idolatry? Um, it might be a little different. I know I don't have a little golden little golden cast statue in my house or a little silver one or anything like that. But we have, Marco's been there, he knows, I don't have that. But I think we all have our own idols. I, I, and, and here in the West, I think, I, I think uh, pleasure, wealth, materialism, these are the things that have become our idols. What, what are we using that, you know, anything that, that dominates our life is an idol. And it could be jobs also, it could be family, it could be hobbies. It could be sports. It could be social media. Whatever we're using to replace God, whatever is getting more of our time. Um, when you look at the grand scheme of things, how many hours that you have? How many hours do you have in a day that you're actually awake? That you're spending doing other things? How much of that is spent in prayer? How much of that is spent reading the Word? Um, how much of that is spent doing other things? How much time are we on Facebook or or doing other things that we don't need to? Just Look at where we spend our time because those things that consume our time, those are our idols. 
and we do have idols to God. We might we not be think it, but and we might not be making um, deliberate sacrifices to those idols, but we're sacrificing our time. We could be sacrificing our family, our, our finances, other things to these little idols, and it's taking away from the worship of God. Here, this this last this last uh, reference verse, um, Psalm forty six ten. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Here, here in the last verse, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Let us revere the Lord. Let us not forget that he is there and, and he will be exalted. So we've, we've, gone, through, we've gone through punishment We've gone through these five woes and kind of seen what God has in store, what God is planning for the Chaldeans. So what, what does God reveal to us through these woes? Um, I think the, the most clear thing that we can see is that evil deeds do not go unnoticed. That there will be a reckoning. Even those things that are done in the dark, those things that are done without anyone seeing, he sees, he knows there will be a reckoning. If you have been wronged, if someone has, has done evil unto you and, and there was no justice, just understand they will see justice. God will not let it go undone. He will take care of these things. These, these things that had happened here with the Chaldeans, it had happened over generations and generations. It wasn't something that was just overnight. It took time. And I know the people of the people of Israel were upset and they were frustrated and they want to know how long evil was going to go on, how long certain things were going to happen. God is going to deal with them in his time, but he will deal with them. There is going to be a reckoning. Now, discipline versus punishment. We looked at discipline in chapter 1. Now we've taken a pretty good look at punishment and what punishment involves. Um, so what are the differences? Because I, I think that the differences may not be outwardly obvious to someone who's just simply observing um, but if you're a parent, I think there might be a little bit more of a personal understanding. And there's a lot of parents in here. I am a parent myself. Um, in Habakkuk, God uses the Chaldeans to discipline his children. But he would punish the Chaldeans for their sinful, unrepentant ways. So what are, what are some of these, dis- these differences? So what exactly is discipline? Let's, let's look at discipline first. What is discipline? Um, I discipline my children. And uh, my wife and I have come together, and we've decided how we're going to handle those things, how we're going to how we're going to do things. Discipline is is different from from correction. I think that um, when my son is running up and down the stairs, or he's climbing on the side, I might tell him, "Hey, Bubba, stop doing that. You're going to fall. Get down." That's more of a correction. I'm trying to make a gentle little correction to get him to stop doing a certain type of behavior. Um, but it depends on on what it is that my children are doing. Um, if if it involves lying, if it involves disrespect, if it involves stealing, then that's going to go to a slightly higher level, which is the discipline. So my kids get a spank. They get one swat. That's all they ever need from dad is one swat. And before that happens, there's a talk. We let them know, hey, hey son, hey, daughter, this is what you did. This is why it was wrong. I love you, and I need you to stop doing this, and there is going to be a consequence to it. And then after that discipline, we talk. We hug them and let them know how much I love them and that I am trying to change that behavior. I'm trying to lead them away from that sin that they are in. Now, the, the important thing to know here is that 
Discipline is delivered because of love. I would die in the place of my children. If, if there was a speeding bus coming down the street, I would push my kid out of the way. I would eat that bus head on. No doubts. Not a second thought. I would take a bullet for one of my children. If, if there was something crazy going on, I would shield my children. I would get shot. I, I, would, I would take that for them. I would, I, would, I would go to the cross for them. I would do anything that was necessary to protect my children because I love them. And I know everything about them. I know their birthdays, their favorite colors, their habits, their hobbies, their likes, their dislikes. I know all these things about my children, and it just makes me love them even more. But I deliver discipline to them because I love them. So discipline is, is first delivered because of love. This is, this is one of the characteristics of discipline. Discipline is delivered because of love. Secondly, discipline is relational in nature. So as their father, these children are mine, and I care about their future. I want to make sure that they're going down the wrong path. I don't want them to take the, I don't want, I don't want them to go through the back alley. I want them to go through, through the, the lighted streets. You know, I, I want to keep them on the right path, on that path of righteousness. So because I am their father, because we have this relation, they are mine, and I care about their future, and I am directing their behavior away from sin and away from things that would harm them and bring them down. Um, thirdly, what is discipline? Um, discipline is used in, um, to aid in overall correction. So that first correction we talked about when I said, hey, bub, like, get off of there. Don't do that. I'm kind of trying to redirect him a little bit. That's correction. We could say correction with a little c. So here, this is correct overall correction, correction with a big c. I'm trying to set my children on the, on the path of righteousness towards Christ. And that is why discipline is used with them. So there's, a, there's certain types of behaviors, and it's not just anything. Oh, you didn't make your bed? Wang. No. There's certain types of behaviors that discipline is going to be required for. And it's because I'm trying to set them away from those types of sins. I'm trying to point them in a, in a different direction. And finally, another, the last characteristic here of discipline is, um, is there's hope of restoration. So when when you are, are, are having to issue out discipline, there is hope of, des- of restoration. My goal is to turn them from their disobedience or their sin and bring them back to me. So there is that hope of restoration. So what is punishment? What does punishment look like? We just we went through a number of verses talking about punishment. First, punishment is wrath poured out. So with these children, I am their father. Anyone that would seek to harm my children will see my wrath. And I can guarantee you that if someone hurt my kids in a bad way, you would never see that person again. And that's the God honest truth. Um, wrath poured out to, to those that you love. So when, 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 when someone has done evil to someone that you, that you love, um, that, that wrath is going to be poured out upon that person, upon that that evildoer, that, that, that wicked doer. Um, secondly, with what is punishment? Punishment is non-relational. So you are seeking justice to be served to those um, that you are not familiar with and those that aren't familiar with you. So you are seeking justice for something that was done, that was done wrong, that was a wrong that was done to you. You are seeking justice. You want to see something happen because, because it is a non-relational. There, there's, there's not a relationship that's there with that person. Um, Thirdly, what is punishment? Punishment results from judgment. 
Punishment comes from a place of judgment where the guilty wrongdoer will get their just desserts. I like that little saying that you're going to get your just desserts because I think of dessert. But the guilty wrongdoer will get their just desserts. And we know that that's going to happen because God is a good God and he's a righteous God and he is a God of justice and of law and of order. And these things will, will be fulfilled. Finally, what is punishment? In punishment, there is no reconciliation intended. So I would have no intention of forming a relationship with, um, I, would, I would have no intention of forming a relationship with someone um, who, uh, who had harmed my child and, um, and who, by, by doing that, had rejected me and rejected any kind of relationship with me. So for me, there, there's, there's no reconciliation that's intended. So now this is punishment. This is discipline from, from my aspect as, as a father with my children. But how much more so is the father's love of us? How much more so is the father's love for my children? He, he knows every molecule in their body. He wrote their DNA. Now, I love my children so much because I've been there for everything and I know them so well. I watched them be born. I, I, I was the first to hold them, to take care of them. Like That's why I love my children so much. But it doesn't measure up to the Father's love of them because he loves them he, so much more. He knows them so much more intimately than I do and it's hard for me to understand that or to grasp that. And so because of his love for us, he will discipline us to help get us on that right path, to help correct us, to change that direction that we're going. If we call him ours, if we call him Abba, if we call him Father, then he will correct us. He will discipline us. Jesus drank the cup of the Father's wrath that should have been poured out upon us. Jesus took that sin upon him, that sin of the world, um, because he loved us, because he knew us, because he was intimate with us. The same way that, that I would jump in front of a bullet for my children, Christ took that cup of wrath for us because of his love of us, because we are his. And he knew that there was going to be an appointment. There was a time and a place when you would become his, when you would be plucked out of your sin and you would be brought into him. And he died for you. He took that cup of wrath for you for that moment when that would happen, so that you could be his, so that you could have salvation. So that cup of wrath is empty to the righteous who live by their faith in Christ's finished work on the cross. So where are you this morning? Let me ask. Will this cup pass from you because of your faith in Christ? Or will you be counted amongst the nations who will have a full cup of wrath poured out upon them? something to think about today. Join me in prayer. Father God, Lord, we just, we love you. God, we give you thanks. God, we give you praise. Father, sometimes your word is, is it drills deep and it hits us hard. And today was one of those words that was a conviction. Lord, we got to see what punishment looks like, what punishment looks like to those who don't know you who don't have a relationship with you. And so, Father, God, I, I pray right now, Lord, that you would just touch the hearts out here, that if there's anyone that is in that situation that doesn't know you, that doesn't have a relationship with you, God, that they would cry out, that they would ask you to pluck them out of their sin, Lord, that they would give their lives to you, that they would ask for forgiveness, make repentance. If they, I, I know, Father, that all of us 
in some form or fashion in our lives are guilty of these woes, God, that we've all committed them in some, some way or another, Lord. So I pray that it would be a time of reflection for us to look at our actions and see that we've done. And, and, and God, I, I pray that, that this word would, would ultimately draw us closer to you and, and just to, to love you for that, that awesome gift of grace that you've given us, Lord, to know that that cup of wrath that is in your right hand is empty for us because of what Christ did, because of his work on the cross. Uh, Lord, at this time, it's a time that we're going to honor you with our stuff. Um, Lord, so God, as, as, the, as the offering teams are, are getting ready, Lord, um, this is a time that we need to, to examine ourselves and know that everything that we have, what we have been given, it's not of our own doing. God, you have you have set these things aside for us. You have set us up with what we have. And God, this is just us giving back to you out of faith, knowing that you are going to continue to take care of us, knowing that you are going to continue to provide. This is just us showing our faith, a demonstration of our faith as we give back to you to continue, Father, your, your church and the work in your church, God. So Father, we, we just ask your blessing upon these tithes and offerings, God. We pray that they would be used to glorify you, God, and to further your kingdom. All these things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.